0: The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4205 of The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world, the show where news comes to die. I'm reporting to you from the shed of truth. I'm Andy Zoltzman. It is for the first time in history, Monday, the 20th of September 2021, and I'm joined this week to discuss their latest novels by Hampshire's very own Jane Austen and a man who's just published his debut work of fiction, Mickey the Magic Teapot. It's former American president, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin, starting with... What, what, what do you mean they can't make it? What, what neither of them? Is, is this an internet thing? Do they, do they not have Zoom? They don't have Zoom? Well, what the f***? Dead! Both of them? What the heck's bad? Have we got Backups? Right, we better go to the bench. Uh, joining me this week, all the way from the world's most aquatic hemisphere, on one of the very rare landy bits in Sydney, Australia, it's Alice Fraser. H- Hello, Alice. Hello,
1: Andy. Hello, buglers. Uh, how are you?
0: Thanks for stepping in for uh, for Coolidge at uh, at such short notice. Uh, I'm very uh, well. How are you?
1: I've made a career out of being the second person people call. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not actually not a bad niche uh, to fulfil. I'm, I'm well here. There are extreme winds outside, so if you hear whooshing noises, uh, it's not a metaphor.
0: Also joining us this week, uh, stepping in for Jane Austen from elsewhere in London. At least not his uh, regular haunt, so hopefully less prone to any monsoon flooding than
2: uh, when he joins us from Mumbai. It's Anuvab Pal. Hello, Anuvab. How are you? Hello, Andy. Hello, Alice. Um, so far, it's not flooded here in Hampstead, where I am, but uh, <laughs> I cannot guarantee it. Thank you for letting me step in for Jane Austen. I have been working on my novel Pride, Prejudice, and Some Samosas, um, (laughs) which is the follow-up work to her classic.
0: We are recording on the 20th of September. This week is International Week of Happiness at Work. Um, which is a bit insensitive in the first week that I haven't had to watch any cricket uh, for money uh, for a very long time. Um, But to mark International Week of Happiness at Work, we in The Bugle giving you tips on how to share happiness in the workplace. Uh, So whenever your boss asks you something, respond with a hearty and prolonged laugh. Between 30 and 60 seconds should do the trick, followed by a little dance. Also, we suggest you attend workplace meetings in fancy dress. If, for example, you're at a meeting when you have to announce to your colleagues that a swathe of redundancies will result in many of them losing their jobs, do so whilst dressed as the Pope, or a Transformer, or ideally Darth Vader. It could really just take the edge off things. Uh, Also, we suggest that uh, to to really make yourself happy at work, uh, you wear an I Love My Job t-shirt and a headband combo. Now, In in some professions, this could lead to, I guess, some some situational awkwardness. For example, if you're an undertaker, a spy, an anaesthetist, an assassin or home secretary. But people will surely appreciate that you're just trying to lighten the mood for everyone's sake. And our final suggestion is you combine one of your favourite non work hobbies with your professional responsibilities to bring some more joy to the workplace. Happiness equals productivity. So, if you are, uh, for example, a forensic pathologist who loves Irish dancing, or a primary school teacher who dabbles in uh, haruspacy of a weekend, or a motorcycle courier who enjoys archery, or even an airline pilot whose top hobby is parachute jumping, don't be afraid to combine work with pleasure in this International Week of Happiness at Work. <laughs> As always, a section of The Bugle is going straight in the bin. Uh, this week, well, we reveal the contents of Prince Philip's will. Um, the, um, it was announced uh, in the last week that the, the details and contents of Prince Philip's will will not be revealed for 90 years uh, under, uh, under British law, because, well, it's basically just the traditional reason of no reason, but it's the royal family, so suck it, Trotsky. But we are The Bugle are not going to be hidebound by such law. so we're going to exclusively reveal exactly what is in the will. Uh, which we've not yet seen. Uh, £10,000 of Philip's fortune is going to the British Young Dukes organisation, which seeks to identify young boys with the potential to become Dukes and give them all the training they need to make it all the way to the top on the Duke circuit. Uh... A ceremonial mechanical donkey donated to Philip by American billionaire Jay Farthing Mamshaw to commemorate the Duke attending the Texas Donkey Wrestling Championships in 1964. Well, he has bequeathed that to the British Equine Combat Sports Association. Uh, they're, of course, hoping to have both donkey wrestling and a horse judo in the Olympic programme by the time of the 2096 Games. Uh, the City of Edinburgh. Uh, Prince uh, Philip's uh, very own personal fiefdom, of course, which he ruled with a benevolent ruthlessness over more than seven decades. uh, He's uh, asked for that to be given to his native Greece, And uh, Edinburgh will become the capital of Greece uh, in 90 years' time, in the year 2111. The northern Greek city of Thessalonica uh, will replace uh, Edinburgh as the seat of the Scottish Parliament, and the two cities will be physically exchanged over a 20-year period, beginning in 2101. Uh, Philip also leaves a collection of over 2,000 foreign banknotes and coins, collected during his overseas trips as the number one ranked Duke for Team GB since 1952. And they all feature hand-drawn pictures of his wife Elizabeth on them. A confidant explained, he became so used to seeing his missus on Notes and coins that when overseas he could become quite distressed at seeing money without her on. So he always took a marker pen with him around the world so he could quickly draw her onto the local currency before saying, That's better. Uh, incidentally, Prince Philip would always introduce uh, his wife to new people at parties by saying, This is my wife, Elizabeth II. She is quite literally on the money. Uh, and finally, Prince <coughs> Sir Philip uh, also has bequeathed the <coughs> BBC royal correspondent Nicholas Witchell to the British Museum. Uh, that section, in the bin. <coughs> Top story this week. AUKUS gets awkward. Uh, Alice, um, I mean, huge ructions in uh, the global world, uh, if indeed the world is, is global, uh, with the AUKUS deal, which is Australia, UK and the United States, uh, which involves a, a deal to build nuclear-powered submarines for the Australian Navy involving the UK and, uh, as I said, two of its alumni, Australia and the United States. Um, I mean... How has this gone down in in Australia, this hugely exciting – I mean, I think it's going to be one nuclear submarine for every Australian uh, by the year 2034, if I've, if I've read the details correctly.
1: Well, let me paint you a picture, Andy. After a few mysterious hints in the news about big news coming down the pipe, Australia, the UK and the United States announced altogether – a new formation of the Megazord, that is post-colonial English-speaking national alliances in pursuit of a mutual goal of pissing off the French, (laughs) arranging for very expensive submarines to be built in Adelaide, a city which until now was known... Well, not at all outside of Australia, but inside Australia, mainly for its wankers who are proud of being free settlers when the rest of Australia is filthy convict stock. Also, Adelaide is famous for scheduling the world's second biggest fringe festival at the same time as Australia's biggest car race, leading to one weekend of every Adelaide fringe festival where car riving noises are the background of the show and your audience is 100% guaranteed to be made up of who want half price tickets, but they make up for the other half of the ticket that they didn't pay you by doling out big lumps of freakiness during your comedy set. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, the, the, the partnership is, has been set up to try to counterbalance uh, growing Chinese power in the Asia-Pacific region, I'm very reliably informed, and also to confuse the hell out of whales during mating season. Um, oh, lordy, that is absolutely ripped. Hold my plankton. Uh, the submarines will, of course, be baggy and green to mark them out from other countries' submarines. And, and yes, it replaces uh, a multi-billion dollar deal for, for French-made uh, submarines. So, I mean, why has Australia opted for, for non French subs. Um, Obviously, you know, the French give you a more stylish but more laid-back sab- submarine, maybe more artistically aware, whereas the British-American submarines are brasher, you know, hard-working subs uh, but with maybe less ocean-going flair.
1: Yeah, look, I I don't know why they've made the decision, Andy. I can I can only speculate that the French were not maybe doing as good a job as they w- were had had suggested that they were going to do during the thing, and also that it was an incredibly stupid idea to have the French build our submarines in the <laughs> first place, uh, and also that we want to suck up to the Americans, and also that the UK is desperately looking for allies in a world suddenly uh, that has withdrawn from it only. Um, half as much as it has withdrawn from the world.
0: (laughs) The the, the French describe it as uh, unacceptable behaviour and a stab in the back. Well, they should have thought of that before making us all vote for Brexit, uh, shouldn't they? Uh, the France's <laughs> defence minister, Florence Parly has called off uh, talks with her UK counterpart. And the British Foreign Office minister, James Cleverly, told the BBC that all bilateral relationships go through periods of tension, which is a bit like a husband telling a wife that all marriages have the odd rocky patch after setting fire to the family home and moving in across the road with a new, different wife.
1: Well, if the French were, uh, you know, really, really willing to hold out a hand in the interests of international cooperation, they'd stop pretending that French is the lingua franca and admit that <laughs> it's English and always has been.
0: <laughs> uh, Boris Johnson, uh, trying to uh, calm the, uh, the the troubled waters as only he can, said, uh, <laughs> "Our love of France is ineradicable." Um, now, uh, I mean, the evidence of Johnson's Sounds life and career. It does, doesn't it? Maybe he, he maybe uh, have some some experience with that. I mean, the evidence of Johnson's life and career to date suggests that there is only one love in his life that is truly ineradicable, and that is the kind of love that requires a mirror. Um, he, um, the, the, the China described the deal as irresponsible and narrow-minded, which is a little bit rich, isn't it? Narrow-minded. From a one-party state, you don't get much more <laughs> narrow-minded than that. At least we have two parties being equally narrow-minded against each other. And describing as irresponsible, China has ten, uh, China has over a 1,000 coal-fired power stations belching, planet-destroying, blurt into the atmosphere, and a bit of a thing for ethnic cleansing, which is not the most hyper-responsible way uh, for a country to treat its citizens. So uh, I'm not sure we can take that criticism from them lying down. Uh, Anuvab, you, you had another query.
2: Yeah, no, I'm learning about marine warfare. I I, <laughs> I, I just want to talk about ambassadorships for a second, because one yeah. of the results of this, this uh, diplomatic imbroglio seems to be countries pulling ambassadors out of other countries. And I just want to say to kids, ambassadorship isn't all that it's meant to be, kids. <laughs> you know, no matter how glamorous your parents say ambassadorship is, you can be withdrawn at any time. You know, what if... The ambassador had just moved to Australia. You know, what, 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 you know, with France and Australia fighting, what did you do? Kids, you just put your kids in school, and now the submarine things happen, and you have to move out. It's not as glamorous a job. And I don't know if uh, you've been reading, but France decided to turn around and say, "We don't need Australia. We're going to replace this with a deal with India." Um, now, we we in India weren't even looking for submarines. And uh, you have to look at this as the worst case of rebound. Um, You just got dumped in a park, you look around and see a homeless man on fire eating a newspaper. And you tell yourself that can be my new life partner. I think that's the role we're playing now in this submarine imbroglio.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the criticism of this deal is that we are sucking up to the Americans who we followed into disastrous war after disastrous war in the last uh, 100 years, and also uh, the UK who we followed into disastrous war after disastrous war in the previous uh, years, and and, uh, that we're doing ourselves a disservice by trying to fight uh, with China, who are, you know, a massive dominant superpower and we haven't got a chance and it's going to turn us into a client state of America. And all of those critiques are good, but also AUKUS is funny to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you, you are partnered now with with one of the great submarine technology nations. I mean, Britain's always been pioneers in, in submarine technology, evolving from the uh, – well, the pioneering 16th century submarine, the Mary Rose, uh, which um, worked OK for a, a little while uh, as a submarine. A few technical issues with being able to resurface in less than 400 years. But it was certainly ahead of its time. And then, of course, the Titanic, one of the largest <laughs> subs in history, although a design floor left independent <laughs> on icebergs, be able to drop down below surface level. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're a nation that's, that's got a great heritage and shown an ability to learn. And improve,
2: um, which leads me to a quick question, Andy, Ellis. Is there an official aquatic language? Like you know, like the official language of business is English. If you're in a submarine, are you even allowed to speak French, or is is English the official language of any sort of maritime warfare navigation?
1: Now, interestingly, the official language of underwater is whale noises. <laughs> <laughs> which is confusing and confronting for everyone involved and surprisingly sexy for some.
0: Te- technically, it's called Welsh uh, Alice, as a language. Um.
1: No, Andy, I've gotten in trouble before for making fun of the Welsh language, which I apparently <laughs> is an incredibly loaded thing to do, so I refuse. It's a beautiful language with just the right amount of syllables.
2: You just can't call it Wales noises. Anyway, that, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> All I'm saying to both of you is, as Indians, we can't be expected to speak French just because we're underwater.
0: <laughs> India news now. And, uh, and we've had some hugely exciting news emerging from, from, from India uh, about the development of India's first electric highway. Um, uh, just bring us up to date with, with that and exactly what, what it means.
2: Alice Andy, we have a very enterprising roadways minister. His name is Nitin Gutkari. and um, every day he promises to build a certain amount of highway. Um, <laughs> I don't know about roadways ministers in your country and whether they make Twitter announcements, but Nitin Gutkari <laughs> is a wonderful, very enterprising minister who has two main focuses, weight loss and building highways. And he gets on Twitter, and this is a fact, he gets on Twitter every week and says, you know, we in this ministry are going to build this much highway this week. And most of the time he's able to do it. Now his new thing is between the cities of Delhi and Jaipur, he wants to build an electric highway, which means a highway where only electric cars would be allowed. Um, It's a bit of a tough task, given 96% of our country is still coal, powered and, you know, we use petrol, but this is a good ambition and he's going to keep us updated on Twitter. Um, I will have you know that there are still large stretches of Indian roads, as you would know, where a highway is actually missing. So, (laughs) So I think a good start would be to finish the highway before we commit to what kind of car can be on the highway and whether it's petrol Driven or electricity driven, and there's there's
0: over three hundred million registered motor vehicles in India. Look <laughs> at the government figures, and half of them are classified as miscellaneous, <laughs> um, which is a, a, a gloriously broad term. Uh, which I assume it involves all the, the the auto rickshaws that that take people around cities. But I mean that's a hell of a lot of miscellaneous things.
2: Um, that's true, but also often when I'm driving down the Indian highway. Um, And I don't know if this happens in the developed world. Uh, I look out and I often wonder, what is this? Is this a car? Is this a wild animal? Is this a car (laughs) on top of a car? (laughs) Is this four cars on horseback? You know, and I think the miscellaneous gives you room, you know, because I guess what you guys are looking at is bland stuff, right? You're just pointing out a Toyota or a Honda, you know. I think that we need to go back to the basics. On an Indian highway, the first question you ask is, what is it? (laughs) And then then you go. aiming for
1: a lane and it's miscellaneous. (laughs) (laughs) And it's on fire.
0: Uh, Elsewhere in Asia, some very exciting political news. The uh, boxer Manny Pacquiao is to run for president in the Philippines. Um, He's uh, running for the centre-left People's Democratic People's Power Party, which is also the party of incumbent president and extrajudicial killings fan, Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, And uh, Pacquiao's had a glamorous boxing career. He's uh, the only boxer to hold uh, world titles across four different decades, from the 90s to the twenty twenties he's been championing in, uh, I think five different weights. So I mean, is this the future of, of global politics? Just you know, because politics is increasingly confrontational and pugilistic. So why not get people who have been top level pugilists to do it? It's really <laughs> just the logical endpoint of our of our of our political civilization.
1: Well, this story is so magnificent that I can't bear not to cover it. The headline was what caught my attention at first uh, Boxer Senator Manny Pacquiao to run for F- Philippine President. I love that. That's as a slashy career, Boxer Senator. If you didn't know Manny Pacquiao, you're either not a fan of boxing or not a fan of Filipino politics or not a fan of unlikely intersections of blood sports and blood sports. Uh, Pacquiao has come out with some just brilliant quotes. I'm I am a fighter, and I will always be a fighter inside and outside the ring. He said that uh, in his speech, raising the hopes of a nation that watching government question time will become a pay per view spect- <laughs> spectacle of extreme punchmanship. Uh, and then he went on to say, "We need government to serve our people with integrity, compassion, and transparency," which I find disappointing. Uh, because I was hoping that he'd he'd uh, serve our people in ra- six rounds of a minute each or whatever it is that boxing. <laughs> well,
0: does. It's, I mean, it's twelve three minute rounds of highly skilled fistic pugilism. That's what he's really specialised in. <laughs> I mean, but the fact that he said that, Alice, we need government to serve our people with integrity, compassion, and transparency, does suggest that he has not watched the news in what ninety five to ninety nine percent of the world's countries over the last what twenty to six thousand years. I mean that that is, I mean, admirably uh idealistic uh, but hopelessly naive isn't it
1: i mean yes i one would imagine that an election where your opponent is on trial for crimes against humanity would be a landslide victory but that is not the timeline we're living in andy i think it's going to be a hard fought battle and i'm sorry that i got the number of rounds and minutes in boxing wrong i i was counting <laughs> by the amount of time that i can bear to peep through my fingers uh <laughs> while i watch men try to murder each other uh I don't have that many hot takes on the political situation, but I do have a great screenplay idea for the okay. next Rocky movie. Yeah. Where he enters the deadliest game of all, politics. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wouldn't be the first sporting uh, leader at the moment. George Weyer. President of Liberia, was a FIFA World Footballer of the Year in 1995, although, of course, more famous for scoring three goals across the two legs of Manchester City's League Cup tie against Gillingham in the year 2000, <laughs> uh, before going on to lead his country politically. And uh, Imran Khan, one of the, I would say, top ten greatest cricketers of all time, led Pakistan to the World Cup in 1992, now Prime Minister of Pakistan, which is unquestionably a tricky job. Now, hosting the Bugle is, of course, notoriously high-powered and very, very complicated, but even I would admit that Imran Khan... Has a tougher job uh, than I do. And um, of course, let's not forget Inatio. Not the first
1: Khan a- to go into politics.
0: Uh, true. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, some of them have ended quite violently. Um, uh, let's not forget Inatio Akarturu, uh, who, uh, whilst Deputy Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, took part in the Commonwealth Games Lawn Bowls competition <laughs> in 1990. So, yeah. I mean, sport and politics do have crossovers. Wasn't
2: the president of Ukraine a comedian?
0: For a long time uh yes I, mean, I don't i don't see comedy as a sport though anyway. <laughs> that's a fair um, point that's i a... see it as a, as a replacement in my
2: life for the fact that i was shit at sport <laughs> <laughs> to... although that would be a good kind of comedy if you're shot at the end of a set if you're not good <laughs> I mean, that would...
0: Too tough. yeah i mean that's a that's a risky path to go down COVID news now and uh, the UK has announced its plans for uh, dealing with COVID over the coming winter Plan A involves not really having a plan and hoping that not really having a plan works Plan B is to come up with a plan if the plan A of not having a plan fails and plan C uh, just leaked is to stand on the white cliffs of Dover shouting come on then let's see you at any virus variants brave enough to even think of trying to infect Britain Uh, Plan D is to ban all mentions of COVID and hope that people will forget it exists and not contract it. Can't be coincidence that no one got COVID before it started being all over the media Uh, plan e is to coat the entire country in wax Uh, no one's quite sure how why or if that would work and plan f is to actually make people wear masks but that is an absolute last resort in this country at the moment Uh, the government's also announced that children aged between 12 and 15 will be offered a covid jab um, in addition to the gradual crushing of their lifetime hopes and dreams that was already on the table, um, and well, um, we're in a strange position with COVID in in Britain at the moment that we're essentially just ignoring it uh, and pretending that it no longer happens. Despite the fact there's still you know, a lot of people infected with it and quite a lot of people dying, dying from it uh, on a daily and and weekly basis. Um, and again, it's sort of the we seem to be in almost parallel universes with the Australian way of dealing with things, Alice.
1: Yes. Yeah. Despite clear calls from the British public that they are definitely over COVID and have finished, thanks. And may we leave the table, please? uh, Professor Tim Spector, who's the lead scientist on the Zoe COVID study app, has called for tougher measures to be put in place now that uh, he has noticed that the UK is winning at uh, being the worst affected for COVID-19. I think there's 31,000 plus new recorded cases, which is quite a lot, uh, and has raised the unpalatable shadow of facts of death rates and exhausted NHS staff pleading for sanity in a world gone mad. And Professor Spectre, which is short for Spectre of Christmas Future, has called for the government to launch the emergency plan B early, uh, which would involve lots of people online having tantrums uh, and... (laughs) Uh, you know, just questioning vaccine passports and probably not being able to have unprotected sex with the secretary at the Christmas party unless you're both wearing masks, which, to be frank, you're probably both okay with because Zoom filters are super flattering and you'd forgotten how each other really looked. (laughs) I just... um,
2: Andy Ellis, I've been a visitor in the UK for about three weeks now. And uh, for the first time, after about two and a half years, I went to the theatre. And one of the requirements of the theatre was to have a lateral flow test before entering and the gentleman before me didn't have one. And the usher said, Well, if you were to take a lateral flow test right now, what do you think the result would be? <laughs> and he said, I don't think I'd have it. And he said, Well, then, welcome to the play. And I think that <laughs> I think what I really like about your country is it's a
1: lateral thinking test is that,
2: <laughs> is, is that there is this fair conversation about medical tests. Um, And I think you can extend this to all all things. You know, you can say if you were to take a blood test, do you think we'd find that you have kidney stones? You know, that kind of thing. If it was more conversation, I think medicine would progress. Um, (laughs) Even in the quarantine (laughs) forms they made us fill out. One of the questions was, how do you plan to spend the next week in quarantine? And uh, and then the question after that was, And after that, how do you plan to spend time generally?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So basically, what are you doing with your life type question? (laughs) (laughs) We don't don't want drifters in this country.
1: (laughs) Do you think your mother would be disappointed in your choices? We want people who are all
2: business, going to get shit done. (laughs) Exactly. And I feel the moment parenting and philosophy enters medicine, we're in a good place.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, There were some uh, accusations that the government was not setting. The greatest uh, of examples, its um, uh, plans uh, include, and I quote, reminding people to let in fresh air if meeting indoors and to wear face coverings in crowded settings. And uh, if you look at any footage from the House of Commons on the Conservative (laughs) benches, and the House of Commons in in London is, is notoriously... A not big enough room. It is not fit for purpose in an almost infinite number of ways, from the incredibly childish uh, confrontational politics that it fosters to the fact that it is uh, in a creaky old um, moulding building. Um, and even look at footage from cabinet meetings. Again, you know, thirty odd people crowded round a table, n- none of them wearing masks. So it's clear this recommendation is not so much. A case of do as I say, not do as I do. It's more a case of could you maybe sort of uh, do as we sort of sometimes say if you want or don't uh, or do as we don't do if you can't be asked to do as we sort of say. Are we all on the same page? Hands in. Go, Team GB. Beat the virus. So uh, everyone knows exactly what's going on. And um, Booster Jabs are being brought in as well. Booster Jabs, coincidentally, Michael Gove's favourite nightclub DJ. And um, for those who don't qualify for Booster Jabs, there will also be free booster comments sent by text message from the NHS app, uh, including uh, messages such as, you look great, well done on that thing you just did, and chin up, who needs a future?
2: (laughs) Sorry, Andy, what was the DJ name again?
0: Bo- booster Jabs, <laughs> terrific <guy. It's>, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he can really bang out the classics. Uh, Sean Penn versus COVID News Now. And um, uh, like many of the world's leading uh, film actors, Sean Penn is, is not a fan of COVID. Uh, uh, but he is a fan of people uh, getting vaccinated if they want to see his new film, Flag Day um in cinemas and he's urged <laughs> only those who've been vaccinated to go and see the film uh in in cinemas uh, alice you are uh the bugles sean penn correspondent uh, and you've been keeping track of uh his life ever since he was born 61 years ago uh, for us um why is uh, i mean what's sean hoping to achieve with this intervention <laughs>
1: I think what he's hoping to achieve with this intervention is to either lower or raise vaccination rates. But it's difficult to tell which until the Rotten Tomatoes reviews (laughs) of Flag Day come together. Uh, The problem, of course, with Sean Penn trying to make any kind of political statement is that Sean Penn is so good at acting that nobody knows if he really means it or not (laughs) or, in fact, who he is who, to give them this message. Most people receiving the message think it was just a bus driver or a local postwoman who told them the information, failing to recognise the deep emotional impact and slightly dangerous shower of awards that is the only <laughs> giveaway that you're in the presence of Sean Penn's best method acting. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure how effective uh, his assertion is going to be.
0: Uh, and what do you know about the film Flag Day that, that is is coming out? Because I, I, it's passed me by, to be honest, so so do you know <laughs> Do you know what it is? Is It's not a golf thing. I'm afraid
1: I don't know anything about Flag Day uh, except that it's a a holiday of of flags. Right. uh, That doesn't, does or doesn't have a flag of its own.
0: Right. It's not like on
1: on a journey.
0: Right. Uh, Probably. Yeah, not a film about two ships in a chase across the oceans (laughs) abusing each other via semaphore. I I would pay to watch that, to be honest.
1: Well, uh, he's he's got uh, his son Hopper in in the film in Flag Day, Right. Um, but actually uh, it's also just Sean Penn. He right. doesn't have a son, right? Okay, <laughs> uh, and,
2: and I feel it's exactly that story, Andy. Uh, and in fact, I think Sean Penn is playing one of the ships. <laughs> That's the, <laughs> It's he's done playing animate objects, as Alice described, and I think he's going into the inanimate object territory. Um, yeah, and you well, know
0: he got an Oscar for Apollo thirteen, didn't he? As, uh... <laughs> The rocket. <laughs> he did. He did. Um, I mean, it sets a bit of a dangerous precedent, though, doesn't it? If, if actors are starting to, you know, issue restrictions and ultimatums on who is allowed to go and see their films in in film theaters, and, you know, clearly Sean Penn is is doing this for 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 noble purposes to try to help stop the, the spread of COVID. But you know, what if Vin Diesel suddenly says that he only wants keen gardeners and macrame enthusiasts to go to his next <laughs> film? or... Scarlett Johansson bans people from watching her next movie until they've eaten all their vegetables and had a piece of fresh fruit for dessert. I mean, is this a the world, the world... What if Bradley Cooper suddenly bans people who don't own a fedora from watching his forthcoming 2022 blockbuster (laughs) Dominoes of the Never Dead about a professional domino player who defeats zombie hordes in a series of games of dominoes. Uh,
2: Look, I think that should be the future of cinema. I think there should be films exclusively that only divorcees can go to. (laughs) I think think, there's lots of them. (laughs) I think if you're an influencer, if you cannot create a niche cinematic audience, what have you even done? Yeah. Yeah, fair call.
1: I mean, I feel like this is the reverse of the Milo Yiannopoulos tactic of calling ahead to get your show banned to raise publicity for your show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> British politics news now. And uh, well, since we last spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, there's been a cabinet reshuffle um, uh, Boris Johnson has um, chucked out Some of uh, his uh, less adept uh, ministers and some of the more adept ones as well and brought in some that are probably equally as good stroke shit. Now, it's clear that Johnson is consolidating his power base, uh, but it must be said there is total madness in his method. He's now sacked 27 cabinet ministers since becoming prime minister in July 2019. That's one a month essentially, um, is just more unstoppable ministerial lurch and churn as people who've barely finished adjusting the s- their swivel chair to the right height in one job then get shuffled on to a new department. There's no s- sense of long-term stability, no sense of expertise or planning. Some might say there's an overwhelming whiff of a feckless f- quit-playing party games with the na- nation's future, but they, of course, would be cynics. But then, on the flip side of that, I mean, maybe this will work. Because, I mean, let's look at Emma Raducanu, who we'll talk about more later, who's just won the US Open Tennis and at uh, the age of 18, but didn't specialise in tennis um, until you know relatively later on. She did loads of different sports as a child before specialising in tennis. So just imagine how unbelievably good these shuffled cabinet ministers will be in five to ten years' time when they finally settle down to something they have a discernible shred of expertise in.
1: I was going to play a game with you, Andy, okay. where I listed a series of names and you had to buzz and tell me if they were promoted or demoted or loaded into a missile and fired at the moon, um, <laughs> and I realised that the moment I try to pay attention uh, to the interne sign politics of uh, British politics, I fall asleep, so I had a nap <laughs> instead.
0: I mean, uh, you would have said a couple of weeks ago that the novelist, reality TV star, marriage equality opponent... and former kind of politician Nadine Dorries seemed objectively to have as much chance of becoming Secretary of State for Culture as the average 18-year-old from Bromley <laughs> had of winning the US Open without dropping a set. But hey, we live in strange times and both of those things um, have happened. Uh, Nadine Dorries uh, in 2018 put out a tweet um, highlighting her credentials to be the new Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. is the official name of the uh, department. I'm going to put this to our listeners. Can you guess which of the following tweets she put out that showed she was the ideal DCMS uh, Secretary of State for this uh, Boris Johnson government. Did she tweet A, that the BBC was a biased left-wing organisation which is seriously failing in its political representation from the top down? Or did she tweet B... Gee whiz, I absolutely dig digital, I crave culture and I'm mad for media and smitten by sport. In fact, if I had a dream event, it would involve Andy Murray and Jessica Ennis throwing Stone Age axe heads from the British Museum at each other while singing Shakespearean sonnets to the tune of some banging Edgar, Edward Elgar hits reported on objectively by 10 to 12 independently owned newspapers whilst everyone involved wears a digital watch. Give me a D, C, M, S. Um, the, correct, the correct answer was was tweet. A. uh there was a statement issued just before the reshuffle um in which uh, which said the prime minister will be appointing ministers this afternoon with a focus on uniting and levelling up the whole country which is i mean this this levelling up catchphrase has you know become something that is just wheeled out. in fact there were there are rumours that robert buckland the the uh, justice uh, um secretary of state was sacked because he refused to have i am levelling up the country tattooed onto his forehead and um <laughs> despite being described as both uh, competent and popular uh, by colleagues, um, he was he was sacked. I mean, he crossed two red lines there. But anyway, but levelling up.
1: This is the thing about levelling up. Is yes. In some video games, it's good, but what if we're playing Tetris? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great.
1: And um, levelling up is just increasingly menacing uh, indication that you have less and less space and time to move. <laughs> Oh, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to Nadine Dorries uh, putting a documentary together with men who were funny in the 80s to finally get to the bottom of why comedy isn't allowed to say anything anymore. <laughs> well, she did
2: say that she's had comedies being destroyed by lefty <laughs> snowflakes. Um. Correct. I mean, look, Andy Ellis, as a scriptwriter, I have a question here because it yeah. seems like the new cultural secretary and the, the powers behind her seem to be missing a kind of Britishness from your televisions right. and from your films. Yes. And, you know, I've spent a bit of time watching, uh, as a scriptwriter, some of your, uh, you know, TV shows, and I tend to agree with them. Look, there, I think there's too many Norwegian crime dramas, right. too yeah. many loosely-veiled Rupert Murdoch biopics about yeah. succession. <laughs> um, I went to see something at the Victorian Albert Museum, and it was a massive exhibition called Epic Iran, and who wants to see that, apart from the entire sold-out show and the lines that snaked around High Street Kensington? <laughs> there was nobody there. Um, and therefore, if with your permission, because I love old British things, as you know, yeah. um, I've tried to, I'm going to pitch to the two of you a couple of screenplays okay. that I th- that I think could work with the new culture secretary and, and this sense of Britishness. Um, now, what could be more British than India? Um, and, I, and I thought the best way to combine Britishness would be to bring in a little Indian favour so here are a couple of the screenplays very quickly for you to judge if you consider yourselves important commissioners of the BBC um, Absolutely. this is the first thing I think the cultural secretary will like this, William the Conqueror in Bollywood, the Battle of Hastings is a dance off <laughs> uh, Sherlock Holmes in the Adventure of Downton Abbey, the case of the mysterious vegan who came to tea <laughs> A Tale of Two Dishooms, Classic Dickens Meets 21st Century London Dining. <laughs> um, and, and here's one where I've sort of combined all the great Britishness into one film. A Passage to India with a Room with a View with a Jewel of the cra- in the Crown of the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. Or Where is Tom? Um, <laughs> this is a film. And finally, if they're up for some mathematics and great Britishness, Non-Binary Shakespeare. Uh, I mean, of course, not as how people identify, but as the mathematical definition. So all of Shakespeare's plays told with the numbers one and zero. Uh, <laughs> Hamlet, for example, would be tragedy of zero zero one zero zero one one.
0: That concludes uh, this week's Bugle. Thank you very much for listening, uh, Buglers. Alice, anything else to tell our listeners about in your extensive portfolio?
1: Uh, yes, I. Uh, of course, you can find me as always on Twitter and Instagram at illustrative, a l i t e r a t i v e or my Patreon patreon dot com slash Alice Fraser. Um, there, I will be going for six weeks on uh, what I'm calling eternity leave, where I stare into the bleak <laughs> abyss of. Uh, the reality of of mortality and also we'll be having a baby but uh, we've got backup versions of the gargle coming in there so you don't have to worry that you'll miss even a step of my cutting edge magazine (laughs) style satire
0: yeah well good good luck good luck with that and um are you um intending to create a new human being any point? very good uh, question
2: andy i'm in london uh doing some shows for the next three weeks which people can follow on twitter but um currently there are no plans in giving birth within those three right. weeks but that might quickly change uh because it's covid schedules are you changing know these days do you? Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be adaptable
0: <laughs> that concludes this week's bugle uh best of luck to alice for <laughs> full report <laughs> in due course uh we'll now play you out some lies about our premium level voluntary subscribers to join them Uh, or to make a one-off or recurring contribution of any size to keep The Bugle free, flourishing and independent, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the donate button. Peter W. remembers being advised, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, and would like to reject that advice forthwith. Peter elaborates, I would rewrite the advice to say, when life gives you lemons do some research on where the lemons came from for a start you need to check the exact provenance of the lemons, why are you suddenly being given free lemons and are they from a reputable lemonist or are they perhaps magic lemons and if so are we talking good magic lemons or bad magic lemons, I mean diving straight into lemonade manufacturer is at best naive, Monica Heinz who it should be noted has neither solicited nor received a free batch of untraceable lemons, would make lemonade in those circumstances but would not see that as the sole option for her lemon inheritance. Yes, says Monica, I would juice the lemon flesh to make lemonade but I would also use the zest for making a premium level cooking product. I would extract the seeds to plant a full lemon orchard and the piths I would use to develop a sustainable clothing fabric of some kind which I'm pretty sure is possible these days. If you only make lemonade you're a fool. Danielle Mouchamp and apologies for any mispronunciation there, would divide her consignment of fate-given lemons into two. The first batch, says Danielle, I would donate to a local scurvy awareness charity, if they still operate in my area, and with the second batch, I would make an art installation involving a pile of slowly rotting lemons, which mulch down to nothingness to reveal beneath them a giant barrel full of the lemon-based Italian liqueur limoncello, adorned with the words, Don't drink me, in bright lemon yellow paint. I don't know what it would mean, but I think it would definitely mean something. James Hathaway chimes in, If I received a large batch of lemons, I would, at the dead of night, take them to a nearby forest and leave them in a pile. Then, the following morning, I would call the police and local news outlets, claiming that I'd seen a prominent politician walking towards the woods with a sheep, muttering the words, And now I will find out if Beelzebub himself has granted my wish to be able to turn livestock into lemons, before cackling maniacally. I reckon most newspapers would run with the story. They're absolutely desperate for good copy these days. And finally, before Vignestia Innis rose embarks on a scheme for maximising the utility of her consignment of lemons, she would like to check whether the lemons are a single one-off bequest by life, or the beginning of an eternal, never-ending supply of lemons, and if that were the case, whether she would be able to request a regular arrival of a specific number of lemons, or would just have to accept random, unscheduled lemon drops as part of her life moving forward. Frankly, says Vaniestia, this would be a logistical nightmare, even though lemons have a relatively long shelf life as fruit goes. But I reckon if I could be guaranteed 10,000 lemons a year, 1,000 a month from February to November, with December and January off, I could integrate a lemon trading scheme into my schedule. And yes, I would use the summer batches to make lemonade. I mean, why wouldn't you? Here endeth this week's lies. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here.